Hi folks, you'll probably notice when you get to the interview portion of this episode that the audio quality is not quite up to our usual standard. We tried the best we could to clean it up, but unfortunately the day we conducted the interview, we were battling two bad internet connections. Hope you still enjoy the episode, lots of great info in it, but there might be some parts where you have to increase the volume or maybe re-listen to it a couple times. Every now and then, something happens that makes you realize that agriculture producers can be ahead of the curve more often than you might expect. Take something like rotational grazing. Alan Savory and holistic management practitioners have been talking about the on-farm and ecological benefits of rotational grazing since the 1980s. And it's only really now we have documentaries like Kiss the Ground or Guardians of the Grasslands communicating those benefits to the general public. Maybe sometimes the science actually needs to catch up to those innovative agriculture producers we have out there. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're going to look at grazing's impact on water infiltration in pastures. Some of you listening to this podcast right now may have been involved in the University of Alberta's study into adaptive multi-paddock grazing or AMP grazing and its impacts on grazing lands in the prairies. We actually discussed AMP grazing in episode 24 with Jessica Grenke and Dr. Edward Bork, also of the University of Alberta. Most of us probably know AMP grazing as rotational grazing or maybe even intensive grazing. I do have some pretty exciting news. The results from that study are finally in. And in this episode, we're going to discuss with Dr. Tim Dubat and Dr. Mark Boyce of the University of Alberta the study's findings on AMP grazing's impacts on water infiltration in soil on grazing lands. But just before we get to the interview, we'll let Tim and Mark introduce themselves so we can put names to voices. Okay, so my name is Mark Boyce. I'm a professor of ecology at the University of Alberta, and I hold the Alberta Conservation Association Chair in Fisheries and Wildlife. My research is in ecology, basically encompassing everything from population dynamics, harvesting, to to this uh, uh, recent project on, on, uh, on grazing. Uh, I grew up on a farm in Iowa. We had uh, it was a, a uh, classic uh, homestead sort of farm. We had cattle and chickens and oats and and corn and soybeans and and pigs and and uh, just about everything you could have on a small small farm. But uh, and I still own the farm. Uh, I bought the farm from my grandfather in 1971, and. Uh, uh, have have had it ever ever since, but it's uh, a very different different uh, piece of property than most of the the ranches that we've been dealing with in this study. So my name's Tim Dubert. I have a PhD in ecology, and I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Alberta. So in, at the moment, in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, and the past two years, I was a postdoc working on. Yeah, Mark Boyce's project um, in biological sciences department. I'm originally from Germany and left home about 
almost 15 years ago, I moved to New Zealand and spent a few years in New Zealand and a couple of years in Australia. And yeah, I got somehow drawn into tropical research. So I'm coming with a tropical forest ecology background. Okay, so now we know who's who. I feel the need to say this right at the beginning of this episode, and I completely admit I'm a person who overthinks things a little too much, but I'm not 100% sure if it was bad form for us to release an episode on water infiltration at a time when a lot of agriculture producers are hurting out there because of a pretty devastating drought in the prairies. I actually have the same misgivings about the last episode we did, so in the intro, uh, episode 39, which was about new farmers, the intro to episode 39, I kicked the whole thing off with a very sarcastic, who in their right mind would want to be a farmer? For those of you who listened to episode 39, you know that sarcastic question wound up ending up in a good place. But if that did rub you the wrong way, I am sorry about that. And same with this episode. If you feel this episode was poorly timed, I'm sorry about that as well. This episode isn't one of those episodes where I'll be jumping in here and there with fun facts based on my own research. I don't misunderstand me, I really enjoyed doing that research, but we were on a bit of a time crunch with this one, and that research it can be quite time-consuming sometimes. Now, what was the big rush? Well, we wanted you guys to know that the report was out there that this excerpt about water infiltration and AMP grazing, it's publicly available. We'll put a link to it up on the website. We also wanted you guys to know that sections of this report, as far as we understand, will be released over the coming months. Now, the episode, we broke it into two halves, more or less. In the first half, we talk about how the University of Alberta went about conducting the study. And in the second half, we talk about the findings, those specific findings about water infiltration in soil. Now, I don't want to give too much away, but there is some pretty good news in there for those of you who are out there right now moving fence every day in this heat. Maybe you know this already, but maybe it doesn't hurt to hear this from somebody else from time to time. Your hard work, it's paying off. Okay, uh, so yeah, let's give folks an overview of what this project is, because it's a really impressive project, and as far as I understand, nothing's really been done like this before. So yeah, maybe this is a question best for um, Mark. So yeah, could you just talk about what you guys were trying to do with the AMP project, some of the goals? I started work on on this project, uh, I suppose, in about 2010. And that was um, tied to a conference that we held in Edmonton. Uh, for the Society for Conservation Biology. And and uh, we imposed a carbon tax on everybody who came to the meeting. And it was my responsibility to, to invest that money. And so I, I didn't know what was the best strategy and, and started looking into, you know, possible forestry investment. Uh, but, you know, in Alberta, we have two major types of forests. We have the Rocky Mountain forests that are dominated by logical pine it's a fire maintained ecosystem so every 80 to 300 years it all goes back up into into the atmosphere it's not a it's certainly not a safe long-term place to store carbon and then 
The other kind of forests we have are the boreal forests, and they're notorious for being a fire-maintained ecosystem. So the last thing we want to do is invest in trees. Um, but I started learning about, about grasslands and how incredibly effective they are at sequestering and storing carbon for the long term. 9,000 years ago, everything that we've got in Alberta was slicked off. We started from ground zero with no soil at all. And, and the, the rich, thick soils that we have throughout the Northern Great Plains are a consequence of a, a co-evolved bison grassland system that uh, has resulted in, in enormous amounts of carbon stored safely in the soil where um, even if we have a fire, fires are typically on grasslands or typically in the springtime, and you're just burning off the old vegetation. It actually stimulates the uh, uh, the production and the uh, following the fire. So in general, it's a very safe place to put carbon in. And um, carbon sequestration in grasslands can be as high as uh, three, uh, even numbers as high as five. Uh, tons of carbon sequestered per year. Um, and that, those are, those are really high numbers. On average, it's more like one ton um, of carbon per year. But uh, again, it, it, it's uh, uh, sequestered by um, photosynthesis and it goes into the roots and rhizomes uh, uh, in, in the soil, as well as the microbes in the soil that uh, uh, Tie this into the into the soil, and uh, um, during the winter we generally have respiration happening. Um, but the, the that balance is almost always for an increase in carbon, so long as the as the land is managed well. But we how we manage grazing does play a, a big role here, and the uh, there's a um, a lot of interest by the ranching community in what's called um, adaptive um, multi-paddock grazing. Uh, sometimes in, in, uh, in England and in Australia, they call it mob grazing, uh, sometimes called holistic grazing management, uh, has a, a number of, of, of names. But the idea is that, that you have a number of pastures and uh, typically small pastures um, that, so that a ranch might be, be divided up into 30 to 50 uh, paddocks. And cattle are grazed at high density for a very short period of time, on average three or four days, um, and then moved on to the next paddock. And, not, and then not revisited for 80 to 90 days after that. And so there's a long uh, rest period during which the the, the plants are, are growing and uh, sequestering carbon undisturbed, but then, but then um, uh, a disturbance uh, after that by, by grazing that maximizes production. So um, uh, this uh, system of grazing is one that has been very controversial. Uh, great claims have been made about how effective it is at maximizing production and yield. But not a well-designed study to to truly evaluate um, how effective it is. So um, the uh, uh, Agriculture and Agri-Foods Canada 
uh, came up with an initiative uh, a few years ago called AGGP, and it stands for the Agricultural Greenhouse Gas Program. And then uh, I wrote a proposal to evaluate AMP grazing, um, uh, and and we were funded starting about five years ago. Uh, and and we spent uh, the first few months really working on the study design. And and what we have as a study design is uh, thirty uh, AMP ranchers distributed across um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and southwestern Manitoba. And for each of those ranches, we have a neighboring ranch, uh, a, a ranch close by with similar climate, similar soils, uh, but that is is basically whatever else is going on out there. So we have um, AMP compared to sort of traditional, conventional grazing practices, um, many of which are some form of rotational grazing, but not AMP for the most part. But, um, there's, there might, there's, there's potential for overlap, but in, in practice, uh, they're different. Um, and so we have AMP grazers who have very intensive short periods of time where they're grazing and then a long rest period. So that rest rotate, that, that uh, grazing uh, rest period uh, fraction is a very critical piece defining what constitutes um, uh, AMP grazing. And, and so, but we, we have data on, on the, the neighboring ranch as well. That is a selection of a variety of types of, of grazing. 70 to 80% of, of ranchers in the Northern Great Plains practice some form of rest rotation, but not as intensive uh, uh, as the AMP uh, type, of, type of grazing. So at any rate, we, we began this project uh, five years ago, and we brought in uh, collaborators who are range scientists, uh, microbial biologists, people working on soil biogeochemistry and soil carbon, where it's distributed in the soils, and and we have an economist on the on the team as well as a sociologist. Uh, so we have have a spectrum of of types of, of research going on with this with this big project. Uh, we we uh, submitted our our final report. Um, at the end of May, uh, uh, just uh, uh, a couple months ago, uh, but we still have papers that are coming out, and we're still trying to wrap up loose ends. We have um, probably a half dozen papers that are at various stages of preparation and revision still at the moment. Uh, but that's sort of an overview of what the project is is all about. But the, the real focus is trying to 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 um, clarify how um, carbon tax revenues, like those collected by the government of Canada, could be invested in a way that most effectively ensures that they, that, that 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 carbon is being sequestered and stored long term in the soil. That's a great place to put it, um, and it certainly beats many of the alternative uh, uh, strategies that are that are being used. In fact. Many of the alternative strategies are really not effective at long-term carbon sequestration and storage. And we need to be very careful about how we're investing those carbon tax revenues. Um, for, for somebody living in, in Edmonton or Calgary uh, to, 
to buy an electric vehicle where the electricity is coming from a coal-fired power plant? You got it all wrong. It doesn't make sense. We need to be investing in, in programs that are truly sequestering carbon and sinking, and sinking it into long-term storage. Tim, yeah, did you have anything to add to that particular question about sort of an overview of the AMP project that took place? I think what it really comes down to is it was a large project. There were so many people on board. Um, there have been studies in the past looking at similar topics, but what we did is just the scale is very exceptional. And that's very powerful because there's so many gradients in not just climate and soil and vegetation, but gradients in management, right? And this is what we're looking at, the management. And each and every ranch is so unique in, in terms of what, what they're doing on, on the land. So it's very powerful to have such a large study. Uh, sort of a similar question for you, Mark. What, like, what is the significance of a study like this? My view is that, um, that the most important contribution we might be able to make is to ensure that grazing practices are, are uh, done in a way that perhaps mimics the way that bison used to use that this landscape. In fact, that's one of one of the projects I'm, I'm writing up right now is a, a study we did on bison movements to get a handle on how bison. Uh, you know, a, a herding animal would use an area intensively. A herd will, will move into an area they use it fairly intensively. They move, move on, and, but then they don't come back for a couple months. And we know that over the last 9,000 years, that bison grassland ecosystem has been incredibly effective with sequestering vast amounts of carbon. But again, back to, to my view and on the priority for this project is to evaluate what whether this can be used as a, um, a method that can uh, uh, ensure grassland conservation as well as carbon sequestration and, and storage. There are many issues related to grassland conservation that are that are at stake here because um, uh, Grassland birds, for example, is the most imperiled group of birds on the planet. Uh, and, and grassland ecosystems in general are, have been so vastly converted and, and transformed into, into row crop and, and uh, uh, intensive agriculture that, that uh, uh, in the case of the Northern Great Plains, um, uh, 75% of it has been converted to uh, the crop. Um, and so we've only got 25% left. And of that, um, it's managed in, in, a, in a hodgepodge. One of the, one of the uh, spin-offs of our project is the development of a, a protocol so that um, ranchers can apply for carbon tax revenues that are brokered through uh, in this case, uh, CAR, which stands for Climate Action Reserve. And so um, industry puts money into the Climate Action Reserve, and they manage how that, that those revenues are invested um, in carbon credits. And in uh, the case of grasslands, we get about one credit per um, hectare. Uh, and... A credit is currently worth about forty bucks, forty dollars, 
And the, the government of Canada has, has uh, claimed that they're going to continue to ramp that up so that in a few years, it'll be up to like $140. That means you'll get, a, you can get a payoff. If you're, if you're managing your, your ranch, um, well, in a way that's maximizing carbon, uh, carbon sequestration and storage, you can get 140, well, you should be eventually be able to get $140 per hectare just for, um, being in the program. And not to mention that you can still sell your beef and you can still have a uh, productive uh, cattle operation. Um, but uh, you just have to be conscious of how you're managing and uh, ensuring that you're not overgrazing uh, and you're not tilling the soil. The worst thing that can happen to a native grassland is to till it because immediately you begin to lose carbon. And the, car the loss of carbon from our grassland soils across the northern Great Plains has been about 50 to 60 percent. And so we've lost a lot of carbon already. And uh, uh, programs that uh, take marginal, marginal cropland and put them back into permanent grassland cover can be very effective at, at creating a rebound in carbon in the soil. It happens very rapidly, especially during the first 10 years. It's amazing how much um, carbon can be sequestered into these grassland soils when put into permanent grassland cover. But for the current protocol, uh, where one can claim carbon credit for grassland management, um, it has to have been in permanent grassland cover for 30 years. So not everybody's going to be able to benefit from this current protocol that we have, but, uh, but people who, who have native grassland on their property, for example, um, it's a, it's an opportunity. The existing program is called avoided conversion. So the idea is to prevent it from going back to crop, going into cropland. And so they want to ensure that the grasslands that we've got now, we keep them there. Um, but I agree that, that if we could, there ought to be a reward system for taking marginal, uh, cropland and putting it back into permanent, uh, permanent grassland. We don't have such a pro program right now. And that's one of my arguments. In fact, I, I wrote a, a, a piece for the Globe and Mail, uh, a couple months ago, um, about this. And my, one of my arguments was that Canada needs to have their own registry. Canada needs to develop a registry, a carbon registry, so that we have rules for how we reward uh, landowners for, for managing carbon well. So we already have some of these kinds of programs in Canada. For example, in, in uh, Alberta, going to minimum tillage, you can get, you can get uh, $2.80 an acre or something like that for we're going to minimum minimum tillage, but there are much bigger bang for your buck kinds of uh, opportunities for land management, uh, such as converting to permanent grassland cover, doing a good job of grazing management uh, that that ought to be uh, rewarded, um, and we ought to be using these carbon tax revenues. If you, if you add it up over over the extent of the the northern Great Plains, for example, we're talking vast amounts of carbon that can be sunk into the soil every year. And, and, the and there were some calculations done that it, it's a substantial fraction of our emissions, you know, like 40% of our emissions or something like that. It could be 
could be uh, uh, offset. Yeah, I, I guess uh, the one thing, because I like, I've, at least what I've noticed is like it tends to be the scientific community that uses adaptive multi-paddock grazing, or admittedly, like I've heard more producers use it lately, but when producers are talking about AMP grazing, they usually like either refer to it as intensive grazing or rotational grazing. I know, Mark, you mentioned mob grazing. Is there a difference? What, what is, solve this thing for me. What is AMP grazing? Is it just like, rotational grazing in a different way with longer rest periods it is a form of rotational grazing for sure okay but most people who practice rotational grazing are not doing amp grazing so we had a paper that just came out in fact it was a lead author on on this paper part of our project that characterizes what really constitutes amp grazing so um uh, <laughs> The, the idea is a very short period of intensive grazing followed by a long rest period. That's the key feature of it. Um, so, you know, some, some rotational grazing operations, you know, you might have four pastures and you move, you know, put the animals on for a month or two and then you move them on to the next pasture for a month or two. And, and, and you know, very uh, large areas over which the animals can, can, can roam. Um, one of the benefits of these short, intensive uh, periods of grazing is that everything gets used. When you put them into, when you put cattle in a high density over a short period of time, they basically slick it all off. I mean, they, they're taking off everything. And so that they don't have opportunity for the highly selective grazing that can occur. If you had a, a section of land and you, you, you dumped a hundred cattle out in, into that section of land, they'd be highly selective about where they would graze. They'd be, you'd have much higher use near water sources, for example, or you can use salt blocks to try to distribute them a little bit better. But they're, they're highly selective and there, there are certain plants that they don't like very much and those tend to proliferate and you see much greater variation across the, across the pasture um, after grazing because of selectivity by, by cattle. Whereas AMP grazing, uh, tends to homogenize better, and everything tends to get used more, uh, more so, and uh, and so it, it maintains um, uh, the diversity of, of vegetation types. If you don't have the increasers and decreasers um, that being uh, so prominent in a, uh, an AMP grazing system, as Tim said already, like every ranch is unique. Every branch has its own unique practices. So, how were you able to like? pinpoint okay like okay this person's gonna be this is an AMP grazer for our study or uh this person's obviously conventional just kind of curious what was like the criteria to be a AMP grazer as part of the study we got a list of of ranches who where, where they claimed to be doing AMP grazing at uh, a conference that was held five years ago called I think it's organic Canada is the name of the outfit and um, so Richard Teague, who has been a real advocate for this type of grazing, attended that conference and he collected names of, of like I said, 130 ranchers who claimed to be doing something like that. Well, then, then um, Richard and uh, Jessica Grenke, who we've interviewed, um, and uh, a couple of other people, uh, uh, Steve uh, Applebaum, uh, anyway, uh, 
uh, we sort of had a, 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 a committee that, that evaluated each of these ranches as to whether or not they really were anti and also had been with it for 10 years or so. Um, and, and so the target was to have, have them at it for at least 10 years and that they, they had, um, a sizable number of, of paddocks and that, uh, they were following the basic principles of, of, um, AMP grazing as laid out by Teague and, and others. Um, and so we, we narrowed that down quite quickly that half of that, because about half of them were really doing it. Um, you know, they had, they had some kind of mix that didn't really work very well in terms of the way that AMP had been defined. And then even then we had, we had to, to winnow it out because um, some of the ranches had only been after it for a couple of years. And, and uh, so we had had an opportunity for the soils to have, have responded and uh, uh, water infiltration may, may or may not have been effective on such a short, short time horizon. So at any rate, at the end of the day, we substantially reduced the number of ranches that we truly fit the, the target. And from, from that set, then we randomly selected, um, 30 that, that, uh, we widely distributed across Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. And then, and then we it took on the job of finding a neighboring ranch. And a couple of the ranches, uh, well, I can't remember how many, half dozen of the ranches we had to eliminate because we couldn't find a neighboring ranch that did something else. And so you had, we had to have pairs of, of ranches. And it was important that there be pairs because, because if the ranch is nearby, it's going to have the same climate. It's not going to be a variable influencing the difference between A and P and non A and P. And then, and then it, there had to be similar soils and topography. And so if it's a nearby ranch, it's likely to be similar in many ways. Um, and sometimes there's, there's sort of a cultural, um, uh, thing that, you know, I know that, that, that on, on my, on my, my farm, that how it's managed, you know, everybody else is kind of watching how everybody else does things. If you do something weird, you're going to be almost socially ostracized. You don't, you don't go, go do crazy stuff. But, uh, so, um, there, there are even, uh, I think, uh, kind of community, um, there's almost community variation in the way that the ranching takes place. But, but our focus was to try to contrast AMP to what everybody else is doing. Okay, let's, uh, yeah, Tim, maybe this is more of a question for you, though, one on water infiltration. Like, I don't have a clue how you actually measure something like that. So maybe if you can explain how that works. Yep, sure. So I should, I should emphasize that. We had um, collaborators in the U.S., so Steve Apfelbaum, um, Mark mentioned him already, and his team. So they did the work on the ground, and and I was using the data later on for analytical purposes. So to give you, give you an idea of how it's done, which I've never seen in the field myself, but it's it's basically so what we're trying to do is we measure the ease which which with which water infiltrates into the soil. And the important component is to try and standardize as much as possible because we're collecting in different parts across the prairies and different spots on the ranch. Everything's different. Everything's unique. So we're trying to standardize. So the first step is we have to remove vegetation. 
So that's clipping live vegetation. So almost creating, not, not quite, but almost a bare patch of soil. And then you remove all the litter and the branches. So really clearing an area for, for the measurement. And this is done, again, to try and standardize, but at the same time to, to actually be able to use all the equipment. And the second step is so we've been using a stainless steel ring, and it's about 15 centimeters in diameter. So we have to hammer this one into the ground. And then on top of this ring, we are building the infil infiltrometer, so the device which is measuring the water movement. And that's made up of, it's got a computer, and it has a pump, like a little water pump, and a pressure measurement device, because eventually we're using different pressures. And so, so we're setting up this device, and then the next step is to connect this device to a water bucket, so just using some just some simple hosing to connect those two. And then we basically have to have to start filling water into a chamber, which is part of this infiltrometer. So we're filling up this chamber with water, and then we're first pre-soaking the soil. So it takes about 10 to 30 minutes, and we have to get we have to get a soaked soil. And again, this is for standardizing purposes. And then afterwards we apply low and high pressure cycles so they're, they're alternating cycles and the water is sort of being pressed into the ground basically and this eventually gives us what we're looking at what we're looking for which is the vertical flow rate of the water so these, these are basically basically the steps to collect those infiltration measurements like if you have good water infiltration, does that automatically mean you have good like water holding capacity in your soil? Or are they actually like two separate things? Yeah, not necessarily. It's not it, it's not a it, it's not a perfect correlation, I would say. So it depends on certain factors, which is the biophysical factors we looked at. So it can be soil texture, for example. So water really soil water holding capa capacity. Is critical, so it's 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 not a clear cut relationship. It it'll be beneficial surely to not have the water running off in the first place. So you, you get the rain, you get the precipitation. If you get bare soil, the water or much of the water is just going to escape. So this is like the starting point. If you have a good ground cover, this is trapping the water. So that's that's your initial starting point, and then. But the water infiltration then depends on on different biophysical factors in the soil. And when I think in an experiment like this, it could be really, really or a study like this, it could be super challenging. That like, I like I think probably a few of the years you were doing the study, like you got hit by drought. And I, I know like the farm I was on, that I'm pretty sure was part of the study. Like we had to adjust management practices partway through the year. We probably had less litter left over than we would in a if it was like a perfect year for AMP grazing. So I, I'm just yeah wondering, like how does a study like this like deal with all these variables that are gonna impact a producer's management practices that are completely out of control of the study? Like how do you account for those things so it doesn't completely uh, skew the results if you can see what I'm getting at? Yeah, so if, if there were a drought, it would affect your neighbor's um, ranching operation just as it did yours. And, and likewise, if you have uh, uh, heavy, heavy rainfall in one year, both of both ranches are getting the same kind of perturbation. 
Um, and so that paired design, I think, is really uh, crucial to being able to sort out uh, the the treatment effect, which is the AMP phasing. But but we also then with our paired design have the full spectrum of soil types and precipitation regimes uh, that occur all the way from the mixed grass prairie down in southern Alberta um, up to the the, the northern uh, transition uh, range, the, the Aspen Parkland. And uh, so, in fact, more of our ranches um, were in Aspen Parkland than in any other vegetation type. Um, and the Aspen Parkland has... Uh, is is actually very productive uh, part of of Alberta. You know, the, the average black soil profile, you know, the a a a horizon uh, um, throughout the the Aspen Parkland is 0.9 meters. So you've got almost a full meter of rich black soil uh, occurring across across that. And part of the reason that so much of it has been converted to cropland, um, we have a very high Rate, rate uh, ratio of, of uh, private uh, landholdings in the Aspen Parkland that's been put into cropland. So uh, I would say, on average, a higher proportion of the landscape is in is in grazing. When you go down into southern Alberta, where especially we've got these big these big crown land areas that are are uh, designated for for grazing. Uh, now we can kind of just like jump into like some of the findings for the study. So uh, what I gathered from my reading of the, uh, I guess the excerpt, uh, was the, the main finding was that the AMP grazing helps to improve water infiltration in uh, the Canadian prairies. And yeah, I might as well just kind of ask that question. Why? So so one one real benefit in the study was that we had access to to these comprehensive survey data and Edward Borg, who's um, a rangeland scientist at the U University of Alberta. He turned all these survey questions into very, very useful um, metrics to describe grazing management. So a lot of studies previously have looked at grazing intensity, but maybe just looking at low intensity, medium intensity, high intensity. But we had we had access to data really looking at gradients. So very powerful in that sense. So over and above looking at AMP grazing as a system, we could actually look at practices at individual ranches, really. So what we're finding is, and that's quite a clear-cut finding, is that the longer rest, which again is associated with AMP grazing, is really benefiting water infiltration. There was a very strong signal that we found. So I think at the ranch level we had something like just over 100 millimeters per hour infiltration on an AMP range compared to, I think it was about three quarters, so maybe 75 millimeters on a conventional range. So if you look at, if you look again at scales across the entire prairies and, and across an entire farm, which is most relevant to a farmer, it's actually a lot of water. It's a very powerful finding. Did the results of the study show how those uh, what the report referred to as like biophysical uh, drivers, and you, you listed a couple in the report, like organic matters, soil texture, 
uh, bulk density, plant litter, just kind of what role or what impact do these biophysical drivers have when it comes to water infiltration? Yep. So if we, um, well, I guess we spoke briefly about litter, for example. So it's as, as a first step, as an initial step, it's very critical to capture precipitation. So that's not just rainfall, but it's also snow. So if there's a good litter cover, there might be um, extended snow cover into spring, which again um, transfer, which means basically more water access that's going into the soil. So that's very powerful. Um, soil organic matter is critical because it's um, again it traps it traps water basically that's happening in the soil. So that's important. Bulk density is another factor we looked at, which is basically a measure of soil compaction. So how much water, which then determines how much water can infil infiltrate in the soil. So if you have a really compacted soil, there's a good chance the water simply cannot infiltrate in the soil. And and that's largely what we found in the study as well. So there was a relationship. If it's more compacted soil, there's going to be less infiltration. And then there's, of course, texture. So you could have a sandy soil or you could have a clay-rich soil. And again, that determines that's well, that basically means there's differences in pore sizes for these different soil types, and and that determines how fast or how easily the water travels in the soil. And just a, a, another uh, consideration is the is hoof action by the by the cattle, and um, even you know if if you have a lot of heavy repeated cattle use on a, on a site. You'll get you'll get compaction by hoof action, but if it's over a very short period period of time, um, what can happen is that a crust will develop on the soil, and the hoof action can actually break that up. And when that's combined with litter and kind of uh, stirring the litter into the into, into the, that top layer of soil, you can actually enhance the hoof action. You can actually en enhance the uh, infiltration um, uh, characteristic. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask uh, with litter, and I don't, I think I read it in your report, but was there also like litter could also be a hindrance if you have too much? So yeah, that's that's possible too, and that's related to something like um, evapor evaporation, for example. So if, if too much if too much water is maybe sitting on the vegetation and it's not really getting into like, into the vegetation, but it's sitting on top. It might just evaporate, so that's potentially possible as well. But usually, it's usually it's a benefit to have enhanced litter cover. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, just before I actually jump to animal impact, one thing I thought was it seemed kind of interesting reading the report to see that I don't know that scientists were surprised by something, and I think it was mentioned in the report that it was an unexpected trend that clay-rich soils were showing higher infiltration. Uh, I don't know, in my head, I'm like, clay's wet. Of course, it's going to have better infiltration. But uh, again, the guy with a history degree does a bit of farming, so a lot of these things I don't understand. I'm just wondering, why, why did this come as a surprise? Yeah, so basically, the expectation usually is that a sandy soil has better infiltration, and that's related to soil pore volume. So if you have larger pores, there normally is better infiltration. So the finding here that clay-rich soils 
have better infiltration as compared to the more sandy soils is unexpected and a possible explanation could be that that there's more water holding capacity basically in the clay rich soils and that means once the soil is saturated the water actually infiltrates easier but this is a little bit speculative and it's yeah just trying to find an explanation for a finding that's not necessarily intuitive it's really interesting okay um yeah let's jump to the part about like animal impact so what what role do but we're primarily talking about cattle here so what role do cattle play when it comes to water infiltration or at least what did this study show Yeah, so we found so we found that there's no influence or a negative influence if it comes to animal impact. And maybe to take a step back, so when Mark was explaining in the introduction that this type of grazing, it's it's all about the long rest period and animal impact. So this is basically what people have claimed in the past is beneficial, those two elements. You give longer rest plus you're increasing the density of animals on the land. So here in this study, we can, we, we can tease those effects apart. So we're finding that rest indeed is a really beneficial for water infiltration, whereas we're finding no benefit of increasing the number of cattle on, in the paddock at one point in time. So that's, that's a really important finding. So Again, AMP is a grazing system, more like a grazing system. So we can say, yes, AMP is beneficial, but what's actually driving the benefit? And that's really the long extended rest period as compared to increasing the number of cattle on the land. Thanks. And I know, Mark, you mentioned something about the the hoof impact of cattle may be beneficial, but uh, maybe I'm not uh, re or reiterating it, right? Well, if you have cresting, on the soil, and some soils do develop a develop a crust. Um, then some hoof action uh, can disturb the soil, especially if you've got litter, because li then the hoof action can actually work the, the litter in, into the soil. Okay. But, but uh, the, you know, Tim was pointing out that we we didn't find um, evidence for uh, the number of livestock having. Um, having so much of an effect that long rest period uh, when you when the vegetation is allowed to accumulate the litter is allowed to accumulate that's more, much more important perfect thanks for clarifying that one perfect so if i only do a little bit of cattle once in a while i wouldn't consider myself a full-blown rancher but if i was and i'm listening to this podcast right now uh or this episode right now about this study i'm just trying to think of some and I'm a rancher that I want to improve water infiltration on my land. What are some of the takeaways from this study that I could, you know, maybe use for the next season or the season after that to help increase water infiltration on my land? Well, I would say based on this finding, it's really increasing rest. So after after a grazing event, that's especially in the in the early grazing season. But something I think is important to emphasize here that water infiltration is just one aspect we looked at. So there's different things like carbon, like Mark mentioned, soil carbon and enzymes. And so different aspects. So if, if we're looking at one, at one aspect here, I think we have to keep in mind 
what's beneficial for what infiltration is not necessarily beneficial for a different aspect of the ecosystem or of the grassland. So that's I think that's important to to keep in mind. It has to have to look at different studies and how it all connects. And again, it's this this ad adaptive idea. It's I guess not one size fits all, but it has to be adaptive in the circumstances for each rancher. I think the value is beyond beyond the scientific result is really to encourage people for change um, to to see what what opportunities exist as in really having an impact by changing practices on the land and um, so I think that's that's really the strengths but based based on the results here yes it is important to have litter and we did find which is not part of this study but we did find that AMP grazing benefits the amount of litter that is on the ground and and in addition it's yeah AMP grazing or longer rest benefits water infiltration and I met a uh... An aspect of, of that that we might not have emphasized in, in sufficiently is that that runoff is a really big problem in some areas. You look at the, at the Red River Valley in, in uh, Manitoba, and uh, the, the surrounding landscape is all filled in, in the spring. And the amount of runoff that they get and the flooding that they get in the Red River is, is uh, notorious. It, it just, and it's so almost so obvious that. You've got to have some ground cover in there if you're going to, going to uh, absorb any of that water. But also, um, having that so the moisture in the soil and then having having higher litter that goes with the AMP grazing is really important for conserving year-to-year -year, um, uh, soil moisture and, and to be able to um, uh, survive uh, drought periods, for example, um, that is, is crucially important. Um, I can remember, uh, oh, it was 2002. We had a, we had a, a drought in southern, southern Alberta and, uh, the McIntyre Ranch in southern Alberta, where they, they're very careful to maintain at least 40, 40% litter, um, uh, every year. They were, they were sitting pretty because they had ensured that they had, they had the litter and that they were, uh, maintaining that soil moisture, and they were doing, they did so much better than than the neighboring ranches. So you can really see the year to year um, uh, variation effect. Overdoing it, you know, grazing so heavily that you're removing that you're removing all of that litter can be counterproductive in a in a variable environment. And as we know, <laughs> environments are highly variable in Alberta, and it uh, uh, can really hit hard uh, during the drought period. What did the study show as like the ideal rest period after? So I come in with my herd that graze and I need to give that paddock, was it 30 days, 60 days? You can give me a range for your answer too. I'm just kind of wondering what was the ideal rest period? Yeah, we don't really have an ideal value. So we didn't do say like a threshold analysis um, where, where we could really find is, is there going to be a drop off? So after a certain number of days, is it going a different direction or do, are we finding a peak kind of scenario? So that was difficult because even we have so many ranches on board, we would require a much larger data set, I would argue, to, to really look at potential thresholds. But I think, and Mark mentioned that the AMP grazing goes to 
about 90 days, I think was sort of roughly the maximum of rest period. And I don't know, starting the starting point, I can't re exactly recall if it's, I think I've heard people say, I've heard a lot of people make arguments for, for 30 days being important, but that's not necessarily a finding that's coming out of the study. So I couldn't, I couldn't pinpoint a certain really a sweet spot. Our study was not designed to uh, find that the optimum rest period, but rather to characterize how A and B grazing differs from how everybody else is doing it. And the rest periods average, if I recall, it was like 65 days or 70 days, something like that, uh, on the A and B uh, ranches. Uh, so it was, you know, a substantial rest period. Um, but, but like Tim, Tim emphasized, we, we didn't, we weren't able with our data to be able to say the best rest period is 65 days or 70 days or whatever it is. That's just what the average was among the entry grazers that we had. Okay, that, that makes sense. That's fair. Thanks, guys. The study seemed to indicate that like high density, or like a high stocking rate, really no impact or no beneficial impact on water infiltration. So me as a rancher, if I, I, I probably, if I want better water infiltration, have to go to like medium to low stocking density. But that also means I'm going to be making medium to low money, especially like cow-calf operations are kind of struggling right now. So I, I'm just curious, and I, I realize that this is completely outside of the scope of the study, but what your thoughts were around that. Like how, how do you still get this great outcome, which is water infiltration, but you also need to stay in business somehow, you know? So in general, um, A&P uh, grazers were able to have more cattle on the range uh, than um, conventional grazers. Um, and, but, they, but it takes a lot more uh, manpower, maybe, maybe not politically correct, human resources to move those cattle around. You've got to, You've got to be be after it every every th third day or so, or every every other day. You're moving your moving your livestock, and so you're spending a lot of time with your cattle, um, and that that means time that you don't have to go deal with your canola harvest or whatever might be that you have on the rest of the property. So um, A and P grazing is very intensive from the standpoint of the amount of effort you have to put into managing your your, uh, your grazing system. Um, a lot of uh, people who do AMP grazing say, "Wow, it's not that it's not that bad." But um, you know, most most uh, AMP grazers are using electric fence, and so you have to you have to change your electric fence every time you're moving your, your livestock, and that's going to take you at least two or three hours, I suppose, to, to reconfigure a new paddock with with an electric fence. Then you have to move the stock over. That's going to take you a little time. So days can get can get pretty long when you're having to move your your livestock just every few days. So um, there is a, a, a definitely um, a, a time commitment, and it depends on what kind of a of a uh, farming operation you've got. How many other I mean, if, if all you're doing is is uh, grazing. Then you can keep on top of it, no problem. But if you if you've got crops and you've got 
uh, other other things going on on your land, it, it can be a, a burden to keep up with it. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate you taking on that question. Um, yeah, I think it is a really important one. It's that for us, like we, we talk about all these great, like climate friendly agricultural things, but at the end of the day, the, the farmer's got to stay in business somehow too. So it's always that like compromises and balancing act. But I think you did a pretty good I job. Think that's, that's something I'd like to add. Yeah, yeah, go for it. About the economics. So it's basically um, from from an economic standpoint. There's a lot of interest these days, so not just in the carbon. I think carbon is the main hook. So the idea of, as has been said earlier, introducing carbon offset protocols and really rewarding the good stewards of the land. So carbon is just the the start. So in the future, there's likely going to be schemes where we are rewarding water, for example, just being such a such a limited resource as well. So I think these systems are only just starting. So there may be a case where a rancher has maybe a few cattle less, but if he's actually making money from sequestering more carbon or having more water, this might so the the money stream might change a little bit, or there might be complementary income through different schemes, um, policy schemes. So just to emphasize, there might be different ways in the future, and and hopefully in the near future too. To really benefit from from being a good steward and and using the right management practices. Again, this might sound like a rather dumb question, but uh, and maybe I'm being facetious too. But why is it important to increase water infiltration on grazing lands in the prairies? Like, I can't control the rain; it's going to rain when it wants. So, why do I have to bother doing all this other stuff? So, so I, I would say it's very critical to have a well-functioning hydrologic um, cycle because it's it's part of building resilient landscapes. I think we're in a we're at a time point where where so much change is happening at a very rapid pace. So it's not just climate change, but there's different factors as well. But on the flip side, it's so it's so important to have food security, right? So this is a big part of it. So I, I think a lot comes down to really to the land what is happening on the land is going to be very critical in the future both again for food security but at the same time trying to adapt to and mitigate the effects of climate change for preserving biodiversity which is not just the birds but so many different animal groups are are, are really struggling or really diminishing so a lot a lot is a lot has to be solved at at the scale of the land because we cannot just rely on technology in that space. So, um, so yeah, again, I think it's it's critical to build these resilient landscapes, which serve as a buffer, and and that's that's part of it. Having a good, um, a good water availability, very crucial. Mark, anything to add? Yeah. So, uh, expanding on the the big picture issue, um, uh, beef in particular has gotten a lot of bad rap. Uh, lately, as as it relates to carbon and uh, their impact on the uh, beef cattle, impact on the environment, and so forth, and uh, so much of that, in my opinion, is taken out of context. So, if we look at beef on the on a global scale, uh, most beef production, for example, in North America, is taking place in, in areas like Florida. You know, we have very uh, major production 
regions in parts of the world where the effect is the effect on carbon and whatnot is very different than here. Brazil, I mean, that's the last place that we want to see beef production where we're converting tropical forests into grassland for beef production. It may be economically feasible, but the environmental consequences are are uh, are negative. There's also the complicated issue about methane um, emissions from from cattle, and one one part of our project that we won't be able to get into in, in great detail here today, but we looked at at uh, greenhouse gas um, uh, cycling in in the system, and we actually have methanotrophic um, uh, bacteria, fungi, and uh, archaea in the soil that absorb methane, and and that helps to offset some of the emissions from uh, uh, fermentation in the in the gut of of, of uh, beef cattle. So the soil is actually absorbing methane at the same time that the cattle are in, emitting uh, methane into the atmosphere. So those. Those uh, issues of whether um, beef production is is a really negative um, influence or not, I think it depends on context. And and for many of our Western rangelands, beef production, if done well, is probably the best use of those of those landscapes. Um, but there are other parts of the world where it's hard to hard to uh, justify it and. Um, and one aspect of beef production that it does occur in Alberta is feedlots, and feedlots have a very negative carbon balance. They, we, any advantages that we're we're gaining from carbon sequestration, uh, carbon sequestration and storage are are pretty much obliterated when we go to a feedlot uh, operation to to uh, uh, finish the the cattle off at the end. And I grew, where I grew up on a, on a farm in Iowa, that's exactly what we did. We would get our, our beef cattle from, from Montana, typically, and then we'd fatten them up on corn and, and uh, uh, make them fat and happy for the for, for, for slaughter. But uh, that finishing process is very has a very negative carbon balance. And so if we can keep our you know grass fed beef as as a priority in Alberta we will have a, a much cleaner operation in, in the big picture of things. Yeah, the, the next question, and I, I guess that you can answer it as like the scientists that you both are, uh, maybe you guys are really into policy stuff, you can make comments on that, or you could just answer it as a, a normal human being. But I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts or ideas of what kind of support agriculture producers need so they can improve water infiltration on grazing lands? So I would say a, a lot comes down to grazing practices, so the actual management, and that's that's really in a way in, a, in the hands of the rancher. But if we if we take a step back and we, we look at, again, the bigger picture, I think a lot happens at the policy policy level. So for example, subsidies, where are subsidies being channeled? Too, and I don't know too much in detail in Canada, but generally speaking, I think for a lot of a lot of issues, we have to look at where are we where are we placing our money in. I think that's one critical critical component. And yeah, again, looking at 
carbon offset protocols, maybe expanded to ecosystem services protocols in the future. I think these these are really really important. So so eventually it. Uh, I guess it relates to water infiltration at a, at a bigger scale because we're because we're re-channeling the, the the money flow hopefully in the future towards just really supporting more sustainable and regenerative practices. Thanks, Tim. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Mark, anything to add to that one? Well, with with uh, private land ownership and private management of of uh, plants and and farms. Um, we, we can't really control how people, um, people do things. We can't mandate, um, particular, um, agricultural practices, but we can create incentives and make it worth, um, people's time to, to take into consideration such things as ecosystem goods and services. And so having a reward system somehow um, is probably the most effective way to interface with this, with, with the fact that we have private land ownership and private management of, of the land as uh, the, the primary way that agriculture rolls out in, in North America. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think we need to have a, a registry for carbon. And uh, that registry could go broader, as Tim is alluding to, to include other other ecosystem goods and services. Last question: uh, Is there something like a memory, a joke? I thought like something. You guys put quite a few years into the study. Is there something about agriculture or agriculture producers in the prairies that you think is really gonna after doing the study uh, that you think is really gonna stick with you or has stuck with you to this day? Well, for me, um, like I mentioned, I've worked in the tropics, and I've I've become so accustomed to to the devastating use coming from from the tropical regions, deforestation, land use change, all the consequences. So when I started, when I came to Canada in late 2018 and started on the project, I was quite astonished to what extent the grasslands are really being being a threatened threatened ecosystem. There was something I was not aware of to such an extent again a little bit biased towards other parts of the world but i found that quite astonishing and how much pressing need there is to to really enforce better protection not just of the ecosystem itself of the grasslands but yeah like mark said the bird species and which, which are as, as a as, as a as a group as an animal group really threatened so yeah that was quite quite astonishing thanks then uh mark yes i um I guess the uh, the role that government plays is uh, uh, potentially terrifying. <laughs> I mean, gov government decisions can have such a huge effect, and um, yes, I uh, we need good people in government, and I, I and we certainly have some good people working for government. And, Unfortunately, at top level political decisions oftentimes don't necessarily make a lot of sense. But uh, anyway, we'll we'll survive for the next administration to come along. <laughs> uh, it can be very frustrating to see how how uh, government decisions uh, uh, 
go both ways. You know, the whole carbon tax, I and mean, just as an example, the attitude toward carbon tax. Well, um, you know, we had Nobel Prize winning um, uh, uh, economists uh, showing that carbon tax is a very effective way to ensure that um, that we're doing a better job of, of uh, managing emissions. Uh, but then we have, uh, you know, uh, premiers of several provinces just being so adamantly opposed to anything related to a carbon tax that uh, uh, fighting it tooth and nail. Um, so we need to be sure that if we're going to impose a carbon tax, that we're going to use those revenues effectively. And I'm not convinced that our current government's got it figured out. And <laughs> we've got a lot of work to do. So um, the role of government at top level is uh, um, is crucially important, and it's like I said, it's terrifying. <laughs> um, okay, uh, th- yeah, I've, we've gone through my questions, but I'm just curious if you guys felt like there's anything that still needs to be said about the study AMP grazing. I first learned about this idea of AMP grazing when Alan Savory came to give a talk at university and this was 30 years ago and it has been controversial from the very beginning alan savory of course was from zimbabwe and uh, his his thoughts about um uh, about anti-grazing came from his experience of observing large herds of wildebeest and, and other large mammals moving across the landscape and and uh, hitting an area hard and then moving it like like bison used to do on on the great plains um and and so that kind of shaped his thinking in the development of, of AMP grazing and when we started this project although our design was intended to evaluate AMP grazing i was not a believer <laughs> and basically at the at the outset i thought well we're going to at least set the record straight here. And I certainly was not um, convinced that it, was, that it was effective or that it was a, uh, necessarily a, a, a wise management strategy. But we've looked at the data, and there are a number of clear benefits associated with AMP grazing um, in, terms of, um, in terms of carbon sequestration and storage, uh, depth of the um, AH horizon in the soil, uh, water infiltration and, and uh, buffering, um, and uh, um, as, as well as the uh, uh, biodiversity uh, ramifications. We don't want everything on the landscape being managed the same way, but having some AMP grazing uh, on that landscape is probably a, uh, is probably a useful uh, big picture um, management strategy. So my thinking has certainly. Uh, changed as we've seen the results coming from from this study, and it's not all it's not all roses, but it, it certainly has some real benefits. And, and I'm, I'm delighted that some ranchers are are using AMP grazing. I think it has has clear benefits under some circumstances and for some some ranching operations. Told you there was good news in there for those of you that are moving fence every day. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with Climate Solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and social innovation labs. 
We produce a farmer's blog. We assist rural communities to develop their own community renewable energy projects. And of course, there's this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Lance Tailfeathers in Lethbridge, Brenda Barrett in Alex, and Marie Galanka in Athabasca. The podcast receives funding from a variety of foundations that are based in Alberta. My parts of the podcast were recorded in Calgary, so that means my parts of the podcast were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in Métis Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. I do hope there is some precipitation somewhere in the near future for you. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.